0: This is Problem Solved, the IISE podcast, where we talk to industrial and systems engineers about their work, ideas, and solutions.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. I'm David Brandt, Web Managing Editor for the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers and a producer on Problem Solved. I know I said we were on hiatus, but everyone's talking about COVID-19 coronavirus, and I thought maybe we should too. So we are talking today to three members of the Society for Health Systems about the work that engineers are doing on the front lines, as well as knowledge and observations about how health systems are managing this crisis. There are two interviews in this episode, so we'll be talking first with Amanda Muborn of Navicent Health in Macon, Georgia, and we'll also be talking to the leaders behind the SHS think tanks, Allie Hobbs and Aaron Connie. And we do want to hear from those of you who are also working in industries affected directly by the coronavirus. We'll include a link to our Crisis Resource Community page on IISC Connect at our podcast website, podcast.iise.org. But first, let's start our interview with Amanda Mewborn. Today, we're talking about the COVID-19 emergency with an engineer who is on the front lines in the healthcare system and is also one of our favorite people to talk to at IISC, Amanda Mewborn. Amanda is a 15-year veteran of the healthcare industry. She joined Navicent Health in Central Georgia in January 2020 as Vice President of Facility Planning and Development, in which she's responsible for a number of sectors, including facility design and maintenance, clinical engineering emergency preparedness, food services, environmental services, and employee health, among other areas. Before joining Navicent, Amanda worked at Piedmont Healthcare as Executive Director of Project Management for five years, primarily focused on development of a $452 million, almost 1 million square foot expansion to Piedmont Atlanta Hospital, known as Piedmont Atlanta Tower. She also worked on clinical quality and stewardship initiatives. Amanda received her Master of Science in Health Systems and Bachelor of Science in Industrial and Systems Engineering from Georgia Tech, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Georgia State University. She is a diplomat in the Society for Health Systems and a senior member of the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers. Amanda was recognized by Atlanta Business Chronicle as a top 40 business leader under age 40 in 2018. She's also a steering committee member of Women in Healthcare's Georgia chapter. Amanda, thank you for taking the time out to talk with us.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here today.
1: Well, we certainly appreciate it. And we know how busy you are because we're being fed all kinds of news stories about healthcare workers and the efforts that they're applying to bring this pandemic to an end. And we're all a little anxious. <laughs> we're all adjusting. A lot of people are working remotely. And we're certainly trying to see how we're going to navigate the future. So we're curious to learn just how a healthcare engineer like yourself, in your role and with your professional experience, has been engaged with the COVID-19 emergency. First, though, tell our audience more about Navicent Health.
0: Sure. Navicent Health is Central Georgia's largest health system. We have five acute care hospitals, a rehab hospital, a children's hospital, a life plan community, as well as inpatient hospice, home health, wellness and preventive services, and multiple urgent care centers. Included within Navicent Health System is the Medical Center at Navicent Health, which is a 637-bed, nationally verified, level one-designated trauma center, and a three-time magnet-designated hospital for nursing excellence worldwide. It is the second-largest hospital in Georgia.
1: As I explained in the bio, uh, you've got background in both nursing and industrial engineering, uh, so you have a really unique perspective on this situation. Let's start with... Your ISE toolbox in relationship to healthcare, what in that toolbox is being used toward patient care and data collection?
0: We have many industrial and systems engineers at Navicent, and collectively, we are probably using just about every tool in the ISE toolbox. I can give you just a few examples. Uh, One is under the work design and measurement category. We are monitoring productivity of our teammates who suddenly had to transition to working from home. And interestingly, we found that in some areas we've seen a spike in productivity, and that is leading to assessment of continuing to work from home even after this pandemic is over, as well as some assessments around our physical environment and changes to the workplace and what that looks like. In our operations research and analysis area, we had to curtail some of our services during the pandemic, and the staff who work in those service areas were then available to assist in other areas with new demands that we had. A staffing redeployment center was created to train and reassign these staff members. And further operations research analysis was used to forecast the surge in patients as well as our staffing needs. And the engineering economy uh, analysis or uh, kind of group within our body of knowledge, we had elective procedures uh, halted nationwide. Now, elective procedures are things like surgeries or radiology, things that don't have to be done right now. And by stopping those elective surgeries uh, and other procedures, it's resulted in a major economic impact. And as the benefits of social social distancing are seen, many uh, hospitals and other places are resuming elective procedures. There are financial, operational, facility, and even infection prevention aspects to analyze for this. We've also uh, explored some technologies such as UV light disinfection uh, processes that are being reevaluated in the way that we use those. Uh, And again, there was some engineering economy analysis that went behind that. From a facilities engineering and energy management standpoint, which is kind of my core thing that I get excited about, I'm I'm currently working on redesign of some physical spaces to accommodate the new needs that are emerging from COVID-19. For example, how do we maintain a safe distance in the workplace? Imagine an open office environment and how that environment might need to change to ensure social distancing. Another example is changing the work environment because people are working from home. We no longer need as many places for people to work, and instead we need technological opportunities for collaboration in in conference areas and individual workspaces. Another facility-related tool that I've been using is standing up a temporary medical unit. Uh, The Georgia Emergency Medical Emergency Management um, provided us a temporary medical unit, and there's a lot of industrial engineering tools that we use there, from project management to construction, tie-in of the facility, operational workflow design, and so on. We also have been using the Ergonomics and Human Factors toolbox. Uh, Within that, the training uh, the public on the proper ways to don and doff masks, as well as the proper way to wear the mask, which, by the way, I just have to uh, give a little... Plug here. The proper way to wear a mask is to cover both your nose and your mouth. Um, and it should not be uh, encroaching up on your eyes. It's not meant to be a mask over your eyes, but it should cover your, both your nose and your mouth.
1: That's the challenge I have. Um, I'm, my mother made a mask for me. She's a nurse practitioner. And every time I put the mask on, the first thing that happens is my eyes are completely covered. So I spend about five minutes trying to adjust it to be just right. And then even as I'm moving, it still kind of shifts around, but it you know, it is a concern of mine to know how to put it on properly and take it off properly and, you know, limit exposure.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very important. And of course, wearing the mask is is not for the sake of protecting yourself. It's for the sake of protecting everybody else. Because that mask is holding our secretions in and some people have really humid breathing and they may be asymptomatic and have COVID-19. And that breathing produces the the viral loads that other people then breathe. So, uh, by all of us wearing masks, it's a courtesy to everyone else that we're not sharing our germs. So,
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: And then, uh, just to continue on um, within the operations engineering and management Tool- toolkit, we've been assessing how our work processes need to change to protect people from COVID 19 while still operating efficiently. So, an example of this is designing our temperature and symptoms screening at the entrances to our uh, various facilities. And developing the processes for follow-up of our teammates who are flagged at those entrances. So if when I approach to work, if I have a fever, for example, I'm not permitted to enter. And instead, I'm sent to employee health. And uh, we have a whole process we put in place for following up and caring for our teammates. And then the final toolbox that I'll highlight, certainly not the last one that we're using, but uh, what a very important one is supply chain management. And, of course, we've all heard on the news about the supply chain challenges associated with the sudden surge in demand of personal protective equipment, what we call PPE. Our supply chain professionals produce daily reports of the number of days we have on hand of each of our types of PPE, and they have spent countless hours sourcing our supplies. Supply chain has also coordinated the donation of supplies, such as homemade masks and gowns and other materials that have been um, created using different forms on manufacturing lines. So for example, there is a 3d printing company in South Georgia that began printing face masks for us, um, the face shields. And so coordinating that. So supply chain has had a really big piece in this. That
1: sounds like it definitely. And uh, certainly we see, or we hear about these stories where there are companies that were producing, you know, one type of product, uh, whether it's, due to the President's Defense Act or uh, just general operations on their part uh, to commit themselves to creating more equipment for frontline workers in healthcare, which has been really terrific. And certainly, uh, we hope that that contributes to uh, bringing this to an end. Amanda, you work in what I believe you referred to as Incident Command. Uh, What does that mean and how does it involve an engineer like yourself?
0: Well, I will tell you, this is the first time I have served in Incident Command, and it has been a huge learning experience, and so I'm excited to share with you um, more details about it since it was a first for me. Uh, Incident Command is a term that was created by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and I'm going to quote their definition of the Incident Command System. Um, It's a management system designed to enable effective and efficient domestic incident management By integrating a combination of facilities, equipment, personnel, procedures, and communications operating within a common organizational structure. ICS is normally structured to facilitate activities in five major functional areas. There's the command, operations, planning, logistics, intelligence and investigations, and then finance and administration. It's a fundamental form of management with the purpose of enabling incident managers to identify the key concerns associated with the incident, often under urgent conditions and without sacrificing attention to any component of the command system. So to make it a little bit more uh, applicable to an engineer, uh, if you're, first of all, if you're interested in learning more about this, FEMA offers these free online courses on the incident command system and if you want to uh, Google FEMA incident command system, these courses come up and you can take them um, at home and learn more about this. Uh, but what I want to tell you more about is how engineers have played a role in incident command at Navisant Health. Uh, we've been involved, engineers have been involved with three of the five major functional areas in the incident command system. And the planning area, which is the area that focuses on the planning for the event, and after that plan is developed, it transitions over to the operations section. At Navison, the planning section chief rotates between two industrial engineers, Drew Elrod and Tarun Mohan-Lal. The second section where industrial engineers are involved is in logistics. This section focuses on making sure that the resources that are needed are available. So when I say resources, I mean things like supplies, our medical equipment, staffing, as well as essential things such as food. The support lead under this section is a master's prepared industrial engineer named Charles Platt, and he leads our supply chain efforts, which have been critical in COVID-19. The third section that we have industrial engineers involved is operations. This section supports operations during the event and is responsible for taking that plan from the planning section and using the resources available from the logistics section to operationalize and execute on that, that plan. And I've been supporting this section. Now while these are only three sections of the five, all sections are intertwined and they require close collaboration to ensure success. There are industrial engineers involved in many other aspects as well. For example, we had a really deep analytics team comprised mainly of industrial engineers and they produce daily forecasts and reports to help us plan and prepare. An industrial engineer in finance helps us to monitor productivity. There are probably many others involved. However, I'm fairly new to this organization and I have not made contact with every industrial engineer.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like there are many at work and they're definitely you know covering the array of responsibilities and, and factors involved in this uh, emergency. And I couldn't help but notice at least two names that are also, uh, IISC members and SHS members. So that was, that was a nice plug for our fellow members <laughs> and uh, including, uh, Charles and Tarun. Uh, I don't know about Drew, but definitely Charles and Tarun. I know, uh, <laughs> uh Amanda, can you distinguish the nature of contributions then, uh, given all the, given the array of responsibilities you just listed, can you distinguish, the nature of these contributions that engineers are making uh, that doctors and nurses aren't able to undertake and vice versa?
0: Well, I get this question a lot. Um, A lot of people will ask me, oh, I was thinking about changing over from being an engineer to being a clinician or vice versa. And my response to this really never wavers. We always achieve the best outcomes through multidisciplinary collaboration. We all bring various strengths and information and our perspectives and thought processes are different. And by including a variety of disciplines in everything that we do, we're more likely to be successful. Instead of focusing on what one role cannot bring to the table, I'd rather focus on the greater good that we can all achieve by collaborating together. So I really can't pick it apart.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, are engineers like yourself considered to be part of the front line? Because we don't want to we don't want to put you in front of doctors or nurses necessarily when we think about who to applaud in this situation. Because certainly, in a lot of cities, you see uh, video footage of communities, you know, applauding at certain times of day. The the doctors and nurses and uh, staffs at hospitals. Are engineers considered to be part of that same front line?
0: Absolutely. Uh, The simplest example I can give you um, or provide is that our bedside care providers, they cannot do anything without masks, gloves, medications, the equipment, and so on. While we all understand the contributions of nurses, doctors, and respiratory therapists, and they are all heroes, we often forget about the support personnel that make those jobs possible. We have clinical engineers who acquire and maintain our equipment. We have supply chain personnel who acquire all of our supplies. Pharmacists that make sure that we have the medications that we need. Environmental services professionals who keep our building clean and prevent the spread of infection. And even our facilities maintenance personnel who keep the physical building running for us. Without all of these support personnel, our clinical staff wouldn't be able to effectively care for our patients.
1: How is Navicent managing the availability and distribution of supplies and PPE? Because that's something that's up for debate in news media.
0: Yeah, so you hear about it all the time. Uh, At Navicent, we are really fortunate. Um, I mentioned him earlier. Charles Platt is a master's prepared industrial engineer, and he's at the helm of our supply chain operations. From the very beginning, Charles began daily tracking and forecasting of the use of PPE. He updates his forecast every day based on the most recent seven days usage, so it's not just based on what we used last year. He has sourced stuff from all over the place. We've gotten KN95 masks from China. He worked with a 3D printing company in South Georgia to make the face shields, and he even purchased Pappers for us on eBay. The community support has been amazing. You mentioned the, uh, the applause. We've also received a lot of donated PPE items and Charles coordinates all of that, ensuring that those items are safe for us, they're infection prevention approved and, that, and making them available at the front line. And just as an example, a lo- local Boy Scout troop made isolation gowns for us And supply chain operations have been really critical in grabbing those things and getting them to the front line to make sure that we're providing able to provide the care we want to.
1: Well, that's excellent. It's great to see real world examples of that being played out. Can you describe the logistics that are being implemented to adhere to social distancing uh, caregivers from patients and family members? Because that's continuing to be a challenge in some areas.
0: Yes, it's the logistics have been one of the most challenging pieces of this pandemic. Um, Of course, COVID-19 is really contagious, and um, Navicent implemented a no-visitor policy early on. Of course, there are a few exceptions, you know, if a child comes or or a person who's cognitively challenged. But reducing the visitors really reduces the opportunity for the spread of the virus. We also have dedicated care areas for caring for patients who have COVID-19, which again helps us to limit the spread of the virus, We have special procedures in place for quarantining our teammates who have contracted the the virus, even special places where they stay. We've also put physical measures in place, such as removing seating from common areas so that people are at least six feet apart. We've distanced our tables in the cafeteria. We've even put tape on the floor to indicate six foot distances at our entry points to make sure people are not congregating. We're really fortunate to have a police force here at Navicent Um, actually sworn officers, um, and it's actually uh, Police Week, National Police Week. So um, I'll give them a shout out this week. Really fortunate to have them, and they have been really vital in helping us to enforce these policies and keep the peace. Um, And of course, it's a really stressful time right now for patients, visitors, and our teammates. And the police have been essential in helping us to keep that peace.
1: Sure. And other ways that people have been trying to manage relationships between caregivers and patients and family members, visitors, et cetera, has been virtual care. Can you speak to how Navicent has been utilizing virtual care?
0: Yes, we offer virtual visits with most of our providers. And that, of course, limits the contact and exposure rate and risk. I actually used the virtual care with one of my doctors and loved the experience. Um, So I'm excited and hope that this will continue. We've used a little virtual care actually in the inpatient setting as well with our, hospi- our patients who are hospitalized. Uh, one of the things we've, we've done is use ba- um, baby monitors and we put the baby monitor in the patient room and by having that baby monitor there, we can see and speak with the patient and that's helping us to conserve our PPE so that we don't go in the room using PPE to find out what the patient needs and then have to go back out, get what they need and then use more PPE to go back in the room. So instead, we put baby monitors inside the room so that we can communicate, know what is needed, and go in the room just the one time to conserve the PPE. So there's some virtual care taking place even inside the hospital as well.
1: A couple of minutes ago, you mentioned the stress of the situation and and the stressful times we're living in. So it compels me to ask, especially because we at IISC, the staff, we know you, (laughs) and you've been on the board and you've been in our office a number of times and we just, you know, we feel like we have a personal relationship with you. So we are compelled to ask you, how are you handling all of this as a human being?
0: Honestly, it's been really challenging. I know we're all struggling with this change in various ways and going through this almost immediately as I started a new job has been really difficult. Being an extrovert and having limited interaction with others has been absolutely draining of my energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, to cope, I've been trying to focus on the positive things that have come from this. So, for example, on days that I get to work from home, I don't spend two hours in my car commuting, which results in two more hours that I can contribute to my organization each day. I really like my new coworker at home as well, my dog, Daisy. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> She really enjoys getting to be taken out on a quick walk midday.
1: I'm assuming that Daisy also has a bachelor's in nursing and a master's in industrial engineering. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's a qualified coworker. That's who you want. Someone who knows what you're doing, you know. <laughs> yeah, she,
0: she brings emotional support to the workplace.
1: <laughs> and also ask for lots of petting though. So, you know, you yeah. gotta have to balance the time a little bit.
0: <laughs> I've also really enjoyed spending more time at home. I recently moved and it's been nice to be able to be home and set up my new home. I know, David, you're about to go through and move yourself. So, yes, uh, working from home can be really nice as you can get things kind of set up and get comfortable in a new place. I've actually enjoyed getting to see friends who live far away more often. And yeah, I mean that more often. (laughs) Um, We have biweekly cocktail Zoom meetings uh, in in the evenings. And I've gotten to hang out with my friends in the evenings a lot more, especially those friends that I normally would only get to see when they come to town for business. Um, And I found that really focusing on the positive helps cope with the grief of the things that we have lost from this pandemic. So, for example, this past Sunday, I did not get to spend the day with my mom on Mother's Day because she has a weakened immune system. And obviously, I'm exposed to a lot in the healthcare environment, and it's not worth risking that and being around her. So um, we, we also have to uh, recognize that people are dealing with real grief and, and loss of things that they might have looked forward to for a long time, like high school graduations, as an example. Certainly, Those things have been difficult. And in order to cope with those, I think focusing on the positive has helped me a lot. So while it's been difficult, there's been many great things that we can harness. And I hope that as we move forward with our new normal, we will uh, grasp onto those positive things and and keep them going.
1: Well, and I think part of that too leads into my next question, which is really about news media coverage about COVID-19. It's not about the politics of it so much, but really just about trying to get a clear sense of information. If you're an engineer or you work in healthcare, you're going to understand certain aspects of what's being reported and you're going to have a certain perception of it. But if you're the general public, maybe a little bit more challenging and there's so much you know noise, whether it's between television, the internet, social media, etc. And you're going to hear a lot of different numbers and a lot of different opinions. Are the cases going up? Are they going down? it's very difficult to determine where we are right now. So I was wondering, are there stories in news media coverage about COVID-19, the data or general patient care that you've heard or can identify that matches or even contradicts the reality in which you're working?
0: Absolutely. Uh, There have been uh, so many that contradict each other. I I think the situation is changing daily. And because of that, I'm sure it's been really difficult for the media to keep up keep everybody informed of the latest information. Uh, of course, statistics can be spun to, to say different meanings. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. So as another coping mechanism, I have really limited how much I watch the news or read news stories. I only watch the evening news about two to three times a week, just enough to stay abreast of what's going on. Um, and without you know letting it cause more stress and, and hype me up more. I've also limited my social media because everyone has an opinion and the opinions are often worded as facts. uh, I've actually found that on Facebook, you can uh, snooze someone or mute them. Uh, And I've chosen to do that to some people that I hold in really high regard, just because it causes me additional stress and I don't, I don't need that. So Mm -hmm. I've chosen to snooze some people on social media. I've also chosen to try to follow a path of just being kind, no matter what people decide to do. And I just try to withhold judgment because we're all stressed and the right decision for you may not be the same as the right decision for me. And to individualize this and, and have each person uh, take the course of the action they feel is most appropriate and just be kind about it and withhold judgment, knowing that everybody's fighting this battle together and, and what's best for one might not be the same as what's best for another.
1: So to clarify, though, as, lo- as far as media coverage, I think you're probably more focused on what's happening locally you know, at Navicent and in that community versus what's happening nationally. Because I think one element of the story, the narrative, if you will, in news media that's starting to emerge is the idea of the solutions for this really aren't at the federal level. It's really state and local. For you, it seems to me, and please tell me if I'm incorrect about this, that your concentration really is at the local level. So even when you're watching the news during the week, Whatever you're getting as far as national information doesn't necessarily directly impact what you're doing.
0: That's exactly right. So this virus is spread, you know, it's very contagious and it, it's community based. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I my current workplace is in, is based in Macon, Georgia, and that's about an hour and a half south of Atlanta. Atlanta saw a peak and, and saw a progression that was very different from Macon even though we're only an hour and a half away. Mm -hmm. So the interventions and the work has to be tailored to the community that's being served and being aware of what's happening in that community and the interventions that are appropriate for that community at that point in time are really important. At the same time, when I watched the national news, maybe just two weeks ago, New York was having a a terrible time. It seems like it might be um, kind of on the the downslope now. They might have already peaked, but they are having a terrible time at that time, and we weren't seeing that much activity. Mm -hmm. So it it is very local and focusing on the, the local community and the escalation of this virus in that community and serving that, you know, each local community is what's most important.
1: Well, I can say, I think for the staff at ISE, certainly for our members, that we are greatly appreciative of your efforts being on the front line and certainly all of our engineers, uh, members and not, who are working in supply chain and healthcare and just trying to do their best to, again, navigate through this situation uh, as we all are. So uh, we're greatly appreciative of your efforts. Uh, Amanda, uh, we've At the staff, we all thank the world of you and we certainly wish you well and and to be safe and sane (laughs) (laughs) as, as we try to get through this. We'd certainly like to be able to keep up with you and make sure that we know more about what's happening and how engineers are involved as we continue on with this pandemic emergency.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you and a delight to get to share with you some of the things and ways that industrial engineers are contributing at the front line. And I would welcome the opportunity to talk with you as things progress and and potentially and hopefully change in the near future.
1: Amanda Mewborn, she is the Vice President of Facility Planning and Development at Navicent Health in Macon, Georgia. Amanda, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us.
0: Thank you. Have a great day, David.
1: Hi again, everybody. We're back for our second segment of the episode. We're going to talk about the COVID-19 think tanks from the Society for Health Systems. My guests now are Allie Hobbs and Aaron Connie. Allie Hobbs is a healthcare consultant with Catalyst, which is a Haskell company. She received her BS and MS from Clemson University in industrial engineering with an emphasis in human factors in healthcare. She is a member of IISE and the Society for Health Systems. Allie is the current chair of the Young Professionals Community of Practice for SHS and is heavily involved in the planning of the 2021 Healthcare Systems Process Improvement Conference. Aaron is the executive director of implementation services at Care Logistics located in Atlanta. He received his BS in industrial and uh, Start that one again. He received his BS in Industrial and Management Systems Engineering from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and his MS in Health Systems Engineering from Georgia Tech. He currently serves as an SHS board member and is the board liaison to the Young Professionals Community of SHS. Allie and Aaron, thanks for coming on Problem
2: Solved. Yeah, thanks for having us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Talk to me about the genesis of this uh, idea for the COVID-19 think tanks. It's sort of Started off, I think, as one meeting and one, or one session, and it really seemed to take off really quick. Talk to me a little bit about the genesis of it and how you determined it was going to be good for the long run.
2: Yeah. So it really did snowball, had a huge snowball effect, which we're really excited about. Um, we had a few of these think tanks last year. So this started as an initiative last year to have some platform where we can all come together and talk about issues that are happening on a day-to-day, just interesting things that I think we all have different viewpoints on and we all have different ideas on how to solve them. How can we come together and just talk through it? So we did about three last year. Um, We did everything from the Ohio um, doctor who, I can't say that, wants to kill everybody. (laughs) <laughs> was <accused laughs> of murder. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting. Um so.
1: Okay, yeah. Who was who uh, let's see. Uh how do we explain that to people without making it sound like it's a murder mystery? Um it was really
0: interesting.
2: <laughs> no, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Um please. so we started with things like that, and when COVID happened, we said, well, we should definitely have a think tank around this. We had one that was very open. We didn't know what we were gonna talk about or who was gonna even talk. We had a couple of questions in our back pocket that were like, okay, we can talk about these things. But we had um 50 to 60, Aaron correct me, people
3: yeah, like 55 people that first week.
2: Jump on and they all just started, we would unmute them, people asked questions, people responded with how their system was doing. And from that, actually on the call, someone said we should do this again. And then it turned into an every Friday at 2 p.m. thing.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, here we are. Um, this Friday, we're going to have our ninth episode and we're playing in a 10th. And um, that's planned to be our, our last one on June 5th. So, um, you know, after those first couple episodes, they're a little more free form and really asking questions. The first one went really well. The second one, at the end of the second one, someone suggested like, you know, maybe we should have people present best practices. we are like, okay, let's do it. So, you know, if you've ever organized panel discussions, um, that's usually months of planning and time. But we've been doing it weekly. Uh, Allie's taken on the majority of the work. But every week, sourcing people to, to present. Some, you know, we've got from attendees. Some we've sought out from other people we know are working in hospitals and working on cool projects. Um, but we've it's just kind of grown and, um, you know, attendance has stayed pretty steady uh, throughout, um, you know, anywhere between 30 and, and 50 people each week. So it's been really great to see the amount of collaboration, um, you know, and, and what comes out a lot of those, is not just presentations from people, you know, we record all of them, which is great. But in the end, you hear a lot of collaboration like, oh, we should get together on that or, you know, I'd like to have the e- this person's email address so I can reach out and try and help solve our problems here. So it's a level of networking and collaboration that um, doesn't happen a lot outside of typically our yearly conferences, like Ali's going to help coordinate next year.
1: Certainly. Um, Obviously with the focus being about coronavirus, about how healthcare is managing this emergency, what's been the primary goal behind these sessions? What are you hoping people are taking away from it as they attend them?
2: We initially didn't necessarily have a goal. We were hoping that people would come on, maybe ask a question and else on the call might have a suggestion on how they did it in their health system. But what's been really interesting is as this has transformed over the past few months, it's, it's taken on this whole thing of its own where we started of just, this is a question and answer thing. Then it transitioned into, well, now we're doing best practices on what were all these rapid improvement events. We've got to make all of these changes very quickly. How are we doing that? How are we implementing it? And now as we get to the end of these sessions, it's transferred into how are we going to keep this momentum? How are we going to keep these projects going? And how can we keep moving the needle? So it's been really interesting. It's not just let's get some questions answered like we first initially thought, but how can we take all this information and push it out?
3: Right. And the focus also has changed, I know, over the past three or so to be more focused on long term. How do we measure how are people measuring um, you know, if it's okay to open things back up or after things open up, how do they measure if there's been an impact or not? Um, um there was, uh, one think tank we had in particular, I remember the one with Jordan Peck presenting and others where it was all about how are you measuring, you know, we're using control charts to measure, um, you know, new cases week over week and trying to figure out, um, as we open up the hospital, are what are our number of cases in the hospital? Are Are we doing our part? you know, in opening up in the right way. And there's been some great work that's been done To there. that
1: point, are there any particular topics that have been trending? Are there any that uh, draw a lot of response from the attendees? Uh, give me an idea about how uh, people are responding to these.
2: Yeah. Um, so I think we we have different groupings of topics that are hot, hot button things like telehealth. We've had a few presentations around quickly transferring to telehealth and how they hope to continue some of those practices moving forward. Um, We had one session that happened organically. It was not planned that all three speakers talked about the models that they were using and the models that they've gotten from outside sources and how they're taking those models and using them on a day-to-day basis and presenting them back to leadership. So they're actually helping and sharing that knowledge. So that's been really cool. And then we've had um, even bigger impact on a state level. We had one presentation that was not just healthcare hospital specific. It was, hey, let's look at it from the state perspective. And what are we doing? in making sure that this coronavirus is handled in the best way possible, statewide, not just facility wide. So we've really spread the gamut of process improvement projects related to COVID. It's been great.
3: Mm-hmm. The other one I can think of, Allie, is that's been a really hot topic is, you know, PPE mm-hmm. um, sterilization processes. And there were two presentations that we had that were both really great. On the processes they used, and you know, explaining the methodology they went through, and picking you know whatever process it was, how it worked, and there were two different processes, but it made total sense. You know, we had them, I think, a couple of weeks apart, and um, a lot of questions about those. I remember a lot of questions from the audience about you know what, well, why did they choose that, and uh, you know, how are they making this work? And um, it, it's just been a really good um, topic that has been directly, a direct application of industrial engineering skills in healthcare in a very rapid fashion compared to what we uh, see a lot of the times. Actually, one of the comments early on, I think, um, was, you know, we're able to implement change in a much more rapid fashion. What would normally be, you know, maybe a six-month project, we're getting done in a week because everybody's aligned on the goal and everyone's trying to make a change happen as quickly as possible. So it's you know, it it's felt like in a lot of the instances and in a lot of the projects that industrial engineers and healthcare have been able to make a much quicker impact and a bigger impact because they've been poised for this forever. We just haven't been able to move this fast, so it's been really good.
1: So there's that sense of urgency that I guess has come in line with uh, a continuous improvement focus. Then yes, okay, um, for each of you how have your work experiences been? I mean, working in, uh, such a dynamic field and with a focus on healthcare, how have you been able to adjust and adapt as not only your individual work situations have certainly changed and evolved, but also, uh, again, to that point of urgency, the focus of your organizations.
2: Yeah. So, um, I work in consulting, which typically I'm in hospitals and traveling every week. So that has been a drastic shift and something we talk about on these think tanks in transitioning from I'm boots on the ground to I'm in Charlotte and I'm supposed to be in Rhode Island. Um, and what that means from a uh, getting on Zoom and getting them to use, we're pushing out these tools a lot faster, I think, than we normally would be. And getting them to do um, things that we can't do because we're not there and getting them to process map a little bit by themselves before we can actually see the map or help them out. So I think that's been our biggest struggle, but it's kind of exciting seeing it them do a little bit more of the work than we originally planned.
3: Yeah. So at my company, you know, we provide software for hospitals to help with logistics and visibility, and then also do consulting and process improvement alongside of it. And um, one of the things that our company focused on immediately was we put together within the first week, I believe, um, a list of ways that we could help our customers. And um, one of them being like, we could create an alert in our system that could be visible on all boards to know is this patient a COVID patient, are they under investigation? So everyone could have that, that visibility immediately. Um, you know, to this, you know, really um, big opportunity to to let everyone know what's going on. So um, we've done that. A lot of process process change recommendations that we made. But my job specifically has changed from one where I would have been on site helping support a customer that went live literally the week before this all kind of happened to how can we support remotely, um, how can we train people remotely effectively, um, you know, and so that's kind of been the focus and also getting them highly focused on data and analytics on a daily basis. How can we push information out to everyone so they can see it, react to it, and and do something about it um, versus us being there and kind of physically observing everything. It's been a big adjustment, um, but we're slowly easing our way back into going on site to hospitals. And it's, we're really questioning what, what do we have to be on site to do and what can we do remote? It's a big question for us because we are traditionally, we're on site every three weeks. That's what we do. We're here to help implement this, this product. And, but it's really made us question, what do we really have to go on site for, you know, now that there's a risk associated with it.
1: So it's changing sort of the definition of what's vital. Uh, yes. As opposed to I wouldn't necessarily go far to, as to say what's trivial, because it sounds like, you know, all of the work you're doing for these for these healthcare systems is vital. It's just a matter of the degrees.
3: Yeah, I agree with that.
1: I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I also asked our previous guest, Amanda Mewborn. I don't know how much attention you give to daily news media. I'm curious for people who are working as close to the front lines as possible how much of what they're doing and what they're observing is being equally reflected in news media or if there is a great discrepancy? Do you have an opinion on that? Is that something that you've observed yourself?
2: I haven't really observed myself because we're not in the trenches in the hospitals with these with these caregivers. Sure. But um, I do have a few friends and uh, my mom who <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take this from because they're only seeing how it's impacting their specific units. Sure. And I think if that's not a place where there's likely to be COVID patients, I think it's might not be reflected as well in the media as it could be from their perspective, but that's all I really know.
3: Aaron, you got anything to add to that? So I actually went on site last week to a customer for the first time last Monday. And uh, I don't know about the discrepancy between the media and what they're saying and, I think it's a it's still a real problem, and it's you know the the hospital I went to still has ninety to a hundred confirmed COVID cases a day. It's it's real, you know. And and the on my part, you know, personally, the level of anxiety going into that situation was high, as opposed to sitting in my you know dining room working every day. I think it's still still a a problem that you know we need to make sure we um, we don't take too lightly and uh, and. You know, I think kind of the, you know, you and I both live in Georgia. Our state's response has been interesting. Sure, um, that's a word. <laughs> <laughs> especially given um, something I heard about data uh, not matching up to reality. I don't want it to be you know, everything to go up too soon and just elongate the whole thing for everybody. I think that's, that's the, the problem we, re- we can run into. Absolutely.
1: I also asked Amanda how she was doing as a human being in this situation, and she's very much on the front line. Uh, Even from your perspectives, how are you guys doing as human beings? I mean, knowing what you know, knowing the type of work you're involved in, and how you assist those who actually are on the front lines, ultimately, how are you handling all of this? How has it been for you these last couple months?
2: I think this has shed a lot of light on what industrial engineers can do at a very fast pace. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to the ability to get back on site and show how we can really help. And I hope that they've seen that we can and we will, and we can do it at hopefully a much faster pace than what we have been in the past. So I'm excited from a human being. It's been kind of nice to slow down. I'm in the wedding phase where all my friends have weddings that I hate it. They all got pushed, but it was nice being home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So in other words, a normal wedding season has opened up to be more of a vacation from all of that. I guess these, these days, I
2: mean the fall as it, as it looks right now is going to be tough, but (laughs) um, it's been nice. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. You know, I've, Personally, you know, been at, at home since Friday, March 13th, but he's counting uh, what day it was. That's an easy one
1: to remember. I'll, I'll give you that.
3: <laughs> I know, right? I know. My wife has been working here as well. <clears throat> we have our five-year-old daughter, so that makes working interesting um, every day. So that has been a challenge, but, um, you know, really connected more with with nature from uh, even our backyards perspective, we've done a ton of landscaping work uh, (laughs) and I've spent many next mornings really sore, but, um, but a lot of walks, you know, a lot of time together Um, really haven't got on each other's nerves too much, (laughs) Um, but there are times, but, you know, kind of big picture, like Allie said, um, I'm honestly a little nervous Um, being in a consulting company like Allie is that Hospitals aren't going to have the funds for a while to invest in something outside of them. And I've even heard instances recently of, you know, entire process improvement departments being dismantled. They were on furlough and now they're gone um, as a result of this. So I'm concerned about that. Sure. I'm concerned that, um, you know, that there isn't going to be a, a focus on process improvement. It's just going to be all about cost savings because they didn't have all the elective surgeries, which are their, you know, moneymaker for, for months. And slowly easing back into that, I'm just, I'm concerned about the impact that it's had on that and that it'll have on, you know, consulting companies such as ours long-term?
1: Well, certainly we all hope that things will turn around soon, not only from a health perspective, but from an economic one as well uh, that allows all of us to continue to do the work that we do. And certainly we, we certainly hope to see that fewer and fewer people as the days go by get negatively impacted by this, whether it's by health or by their employment and so on and so forth. So uh, we certainly want to Keep that in mind for everyone. On that note, uh, I do want to go ahead and give you guys an opportunity to plug what I believe is going to be your last think tank. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you know attendees have in store.
2: Yes. So we actually have Amanda Moonborn and Taroon presenting on how we are going to keep the momentum moving forward. Um, we don't have all the details yet on what they're going to present, but I'm really looking forward to how they're going to leave us thinking, what are our action items from these think tanks? What are our action items from COVID? So we're really cl- looking forward to that, as well as we have an IISE SHS webinar that stemmed from the think tanks. So I mentioned a little bit about a presentation on the state of Utah and how they attacked it. So we're gonna have um, Vinny talking about the resilience re-examined basically re-engineering how we do business and ensure public safety. So we're really looking forward to that collaboration between IISC and SHS and um, all the good things to come.
1: Excellent. Uh, on that note, uh, greatly appreciate you guys sitting down and talking to us. Uh, it's Ali Hobbs and Aaron Conney. Uh, Ali again, is a healthcare consultant with Catalyst, a Haskell company. Uh, Aaron is the Executive Director of Implementation Services at Care Logistics here in Atlanta. Guys, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
1: This has been an episode of Problem Solved, the IISE podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you're an IISE member, you can participate in discussions about this and other episodes at connect.iise.org. If you're not a member yet, then you can learn all about the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers at our website, iise.org. Thanks for listening
0: to our show.